good to see everybody here on this holiday weekend. The truly godly and faithful are still with us. But if it wasn't for this grace thing, we could hammer on everyone that's gone for the weekend. But anyway, oh well, <clears throat> that's the way it works sometimes. You know, we live in a world that, you know, in the last few weeks we've been looking at the grace uh, that God has as far as His forgiveness of us, uh, the grace that's needed to disagree agreeably, the grace that's needed to forgive, and also the grace that's needed to forget. And, you know, if you think about it, we live in a world that can be pretty tough at times. And uh, if, if I could sum it all up in one word, I'd like to use the word that we live in a world that's pretty unforgiving. You know, if you stop and think about it, this world is, is very unforgiving. And I was made aware of that when I dealt with uh, professional athletes on an ongoing basis of how unforgiving the world can really be. You know, during training camp, which is coming up here shortly, you know, th there, was a, there was a dreaded phrase that any guy that ever played sports or was trying to make a professional team hated to hear. And there'd be a knock on the dormitory door and there would be someone there saying, hey, you know what, um, coach would like to see you. And uh, he said to make sure that you bring your playbook with you. And the guy would turn around, grab his book, walk down the hallway, and, you know, that was the end of that. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because if you make a single mistake at that level, it very, very well may cost a guy's job. You know, an ill-timed fumble or an interception or, you know, just a missed play or blown assignment. And uh, it just comes down to, hey, see you later. It was, it was nice to have you here. You know, maybe you get another chance sometime somewhere down, down the line. And second chances are something that comes so infrequently in life. And we've all had similar experiences to that. I know you may have been laid off because of, all the corporate downsizing that's going on. Or you may have lost your job because you made a mistake and you were fired because of it. Uh, you may have lost a spouse because uh, you know, he or she decided to go off into the world to find themselves or something of that nature or, or find someone else. Um, this world is kind of difficult to say the least. Maybe you didn't make the team. I was thinking this past week uh, there was a uh, coach in all-star little league team you know, you, you pick the guys who are going to make it and the guys that aren't going to make it. You know, and you make the phone calls and you let people know who made it. And, uh, you know, and all the guys get on the phone, they start calling each other, did you make the team, did you make it? No, he didn't call yet. Well, he called me. Oh, sorry, you know, he didn't call you, huh? And it's kind of that way. You know, high school teams, they post the list. College teams, they do the same thing. They, you know, you go for a tryout and you go to the uh, athletic director's office and you look on the wall and you try to find your name. And there's a whole bunch of guys that stand around there looking and after everybody else looks and they find theirs and they're high-fiving and shaking hands and jumping up and down and you see a whole bunch of other people stand there just going, hey, just let me look at this list one more time. And that's the way it is. That's life sometimes. And it can be very difficult. And the point of all of it is, is that we've all experienced failures. None of us have ever lived a perfect life. Jesus Christ is the only person, quote-unquote, that ever walked the face of the earth that did it perfectly. None of us have ever played the perfect game. You know, I was just thinking the other day that you know, Don Larson pitched a perfect game in a World Series in 1956. And it's never been done since then. And you think of how many games have been played in the last, what is that, 39 years already? 39 years, 162 games a year, 28 teams. You know, add it up, do the math yourself. I was going to, but I didn't have enough time. Um, <laughs> But you stop and think about how, how unique and how rare that is. And even his perfect game wasn't really perfect because he didn't throw all strikes. He threw balls. He missed, the, he missed the target. And yet it was still a perfect game as far as baseball is concerned. 
You know, so we've all made mistakes, and, and you know, what, what I'd like to get across is, is that how we handle our mistakes, how we deal with those mistakes will either destroy us, or they can be one of the most valuable learning experiences that we could ever go through. Thomas Edison was once asked after 250 failures how he continued to be so persistent in his quest for the electric light bulb. This is what he said. He said, it's funny, I never considered those as failures. I just thought of these, as, these attempts as ruling out 250 ways that wouldn't work. And it's true. How we respond to our mistakes will determine whether we live in victory on this, in this life or whether we live in defeat. And today as we continue in our series on grace, I want to take a moment to examine the truth that, you know what, we serve a God who is the God of second chances. And that really is, has been hit home again and again as I've gone through this whole series on grace and begin to understand that, you know what, our God really is a God of second chances. And I want to share with you something that I discovered one day. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 16. <clears throat> In Mark 16, I was, I was reading through it one day, and, and it wasn't any more than just casual reading. You know how sometimes you just pick it up and you just read and you just want to read to read? And in Mark chapter 16, in the first seven verses, I came across a truth that, you know what, sometimes, you know, like when you're reading the Bible, and it's like you found, you know, money in your pants pocket or something. You know what I'm saying? I'm not, not Lynn, I'm talking money. You know, you, got, you go to the pants, and you, and you haven't worn them a long time. You, you pick them up, you go through them, and man, there's like, there's like a $10 bill or something in it. And you go, man, this is the greatest. Because you weren't expecting to find it. You were just kind of going through it. And that's kind of like sometimes when you read through the Bible, you go, man, this is good stuff. This is good. I mean, this is one of, those, one of those little golden nuggets. You know, when you find it, you don't realize it's going to lead to this big mother load, this big vein of truth that you're going to be able to discover. And in Mark, this chapter, Mark chapter 16, I want to share with you this, this gem that I found and see if you can agree with me. It says in verse 1, And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they were saying to one another, well, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And, they, and he said to them, don't be amazed, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. For he has risen, he is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. He said, But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he said to you. Now, I'm reading through this, and I, and I'm, and I come across two words that literally changed my life. And I think they'll change your life too. In fact, if they don't change, now listen, if they don't change your life, if these two words and this truth doesn't change your life, you can have your money back when you leave. If, if you gave any. All right? Does anybody have any guesses? Huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, we had, we got a winner. Do we have any door prizes or anything? <clears throat> we don't even have donut holes yet, do we? Oh, well. How about these two words? <laughs> and Peter. Did you catch that? I mean, that's amazing to me. You, go, you read through this and you go, but, but the, the angel said, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Now, to me, that's what makes this so great. 
because it's not much. It's seemingly insignificant. There's not a whole lot there. You know, you look at it and you go, man, there's, that's, I mean, that's kind of redundant in a way because after all, wasn't Peter one of the disciples? So why did he have to say, go tell the disciples and Peter? Go tell us. I mean, it's almost like, well, Peter was a disciple. Why didn't he could have just said, go tell the disciples? Why specifically and Peter? And that's what makes this such a wonderful truth. And that's what makes this good stuff for every one of us. See, Peter was a disciple, but he was being singled out for some reason. For some reason, Jesus wanted to make sure that Peter understood that he wanted to see him. Now, what do you know about Peter? Let's have a little audience participation. What do you know about Peter? Okay, we know that he denied Jesus three times. What else do we know about him? He was wishy-washy from what standpoint? Okay, he'd say one thing, then to do another. Uh, he said, I won't deny you, but he did. Okay, so there's something good about Peter. All right. What? He was impulsive. How do we know that? You ever notice that anytime Jesus asks any kind of question, who's the first? Ooh! That's when Peter reminds me of the kid in school. You know what I'm talking about? Ooh! Oh, just put your hand down. But, but it was always that person. I mean, Peter was that guy. Jesus asked a question, Peter would say, I know the answer. And most of the time he was wrong. But he never stopped answering first. It was like he'd open his mouth, he'd stick in his foot, and there you go again. I mean, that's Peter. What else do we know? What did he do for a living? He was a fisherman. He was a blue-collar worker. This guy was strong as an ox. In John 20, chapter 21, it says at one point that Peter, they, they were struggling with this net, and Peter just said, get out of my way, and he grabbed the net with all the fish in it, and he dragged it up to the shore by himself. And if you sit down and figure out like what an average size fish was and how many fish were in it, you're looking at it, it was like 500 pounds worth of wet, drippy fish, plus the net. And the guy just grabbed it and moved it. So one thing that we know is that he was strong, he was confident, maybe even arrogant, to the point where he would answer questions. He thought he'd have the right answer. Uh, we know that there was also some weak character traits in his life. And that's really what this is all about, because if you look back, turn back a couple chapters to Mark chapter 14, let's take a look at this account that helps us to understand the significance of and Peter. What a great phrase. Go tell his disciples and Peter that Jesus is waiting for him. Mark chapter 14, look at verse 26. You know, it's interesting too, and I think it's important to point out as we've been going through the whole subject of forgiveness, that it was Peter that asked the question, how many times do we have to forgive? We got through this whole illustration of church discipline and some of them had fallen in the church and how they were to be restored or whether they should be forgiven or not. And it was Peter that asked the question, well, how many times have we got to do this? How about seven times? And I believe that Peter was very tough on people who failed that he wanted a specific number because this grace thing hadn't quite kicked in in his life. And he wanted a specific number and a formula like most of us do. Just give us an easy formula, Lord. Just let me have it one, two, three. Just give me, is it four times? Then great, I'll keep track and we'll put it on the calendar. Is it seven times? I can do that. But, but it was Jesus who said, but it was 70 times seven. And so I think Peter had a difficult time forgiving people, but I also believe that he was consistent and that he would also have himself held to that same standard. So that when he failed, it would be very difficult for him 
to receive forgiveness that was being offered. And we're going to see that as we go through the account of Peter's failure. In Mark chapter 14, look at verse 26. It says, And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, speaking of the disciples, He said to them, You will all fall away, but it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that you yourself this very night before a rooster crows three times, you shall deny me three times. But Peter kept insisting, saying, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then they all began saying the same thing too. All right? What do we see from Peter's life here? You know, this is interesting. and It's fascinating to me as we go through this. But he's saying, you know what? Jesus is saying to him, you know what? The Word of God says, and he's quoting from the Old Testament. He said, the Word of God says that, you know what? You will all deny me. And you all be scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And you all go your own way. And Peter says, he wasn't even asked the question. He said, hey, nah, not me. And he starts looking around at the other guys, and I can just see him saying, they may, these losers, little wimps, but not me. It's like, don't you know what you're talking about? And he goes on and says, that, you know, and he kept insisting, and he kept arguing with them. And Jesus said, listen, before rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. I'm telling you this. And he says he kept insisting and arguing with them. Now, can you imagine standing there and Jesus saying, you're going to deny me, and having them say, and having Peter say, nah, I'm not going to. You don't know who you're talking about. You must not know much about me. Don't you know who I am? I'm Peter, the I'll never deny you and I'll die for you disciple. That's who I am. And it's amazing to me. And, and I stop and I think, you know, I love Peter. There's great encouragement in this man's life. Do you know why? Because we sit and we think, how stupid it is that he would argue with Jesus that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. And yet, let me ask you a question in your own personal life. How many times have you ever argued with God as to whether he knew what he was talking about? What? Divorce? You hate divorce? Well, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that, you know what, this is different. I need to be happy. It'll be better for everyone. We won't be arguing as much anymore. It'll be good for the kids. Don't you know what you're talking about? You don't understand. And we argue with them that somehow God doesn't know what he's talking about. And that's just one illustration. And I've seen more and more people that have bought into that lie that have gotten themselves into a whole bunch of trouble and a mess. And it's the beginning of failure and it's the beginning of problems in your life. When you begin to argue about a principle that God says is true and you say, but you don't know what you're talking about. Finances? What? What do you know about finances? Let me tell you some things about finances. I had a couple friends that got into business. They got into business, a partner with a non-Christian, right? And as we talked about, I said, look, you know what? Read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It deals with the fact that, you know what, what partnership or what, what fellowship does a non-believer have with a believer? With unrighteousness, with righteousness. I mean, you're going to want to do things God's way and they're going to want to do things the world's way in the way that they understand that makes sense to them. But because what makes sense to them doesn't make sense to us because we've got a different standard that we live by. Say, so, you know what, it's not a good idea to do that. Oh, what does God know? Now, no one says that. 
But they do, they're saying that to themselves because then they do the action that indicates that's what they really believe in their heart. What does God really know? And I don't know how many guys I've dealt with that have bought into that lie and have got themselves into all kind of trouble. I had, a, I had one friend that ended up losing almost $200,000 because he got into business with a non-Christian who ended up just doing everything you could think of that was illegal and immoral, and he walked away from his obligations, and my friend's standing there saying, you know what, though, but I still am obligated. I'm the one that signed all the paperwork. I'm the one that's responsible on the bottom line. Guess what? I'm the one that has to sell my house and, and everything that I own to pay off my debts. Oh, you know what? And then you sit down, and you don't want to be too terribly cruel, and you just want to ask in, in retrospect, hey, you know what? Is there anything you do different? Well, yeah, I wouldn't have gotten a partnership with him. So in hindsight, it looks like God really knew what he's talking about, huh? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, what a fool. Oh, but then we find people all the time that argue with God. What about in the area of, oh, our sexual conduct? Oh, but you don't understand, we're in love. Oh, and we're going to do it safely. Whatever. Wait, what, what are you saying? You know what you're saying? You're like Peter, and I'm like Peter. When we argue with the standard and the principles of God, and we look at him and we say, but you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know me. And yet nobody knows us like he does. Nobody does. And as we go through this, we begin to realize the significance of all this because I can just picture the scene where Peter's saying, no way, and he's accusing Jesus, in essence, of not even knowing what he's talking about. And then you look at this, and, and he kept arguing with them. And pretty soon he had all the disciples arguing too. Peter, what a leader, huh? Hey, yeah, maybe he's right. Hey, Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. Hey, I'm not going to die. None of us are going to die yet. Oh, great, okay. So then they go to Gethsemane, Gethsemane, or Sesame, Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little bit beyond them and, and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, this hour might pass by him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, why don't I pick him out? Hey, Peter, oh, Peter, oh, Peter, why are you sleeping? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Can you imagine? I mean, the argument probably tired him out is what I think. <laughs> hey, I'm exhausted. I got to go catch some Z's. I mean, here's Jesus deeply troubled. He's distressed. He's grieving for his very life because he knows what's about to come. He knows everything. He knows Peter. He knows his weaknesses. He knows his character flaws. He knows what's about to happen to him in the garden. He says, just keep watching with me for just, can't even for an hour? I mean, here's Peter. You'd think he would have learned something from that, right? That's like, man, I'm the never, I'll never deny you. I'm always going to die for your disciple. And in my first hour on watch, I fell asleep and I already failed once. You think you'd start picking up on this. But look at what Jesus said. And he warned him again. He said, you know what? You're going to deny me. And now he said to him again, could you not stay awake for an hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It says again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. They didn't know what to say. 
And he came the third time and said, are you still sleeping? Are you still taking your rest? Well, then it's enough. For the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. What insight as we go through all of these things. I mean, stop and think about how many times God warns all of us of impending danger in our life. Look, you're going to deny me. Look, you've already fallen asleep. You haven't been even here for an hour. I mean, you're starting to pick up on the fact that I know something. Look, here you are, you're sleeping again. Here you are, you're sleeping the third time. And they slept three times and were warned three times. And you know what? And he said, but you know what? The problem is you need to stay alert. You need to keep watching. You need to keep praying because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So then we move on and we look at verse 40, 43. It says, And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, he immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But a certain one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Guess who that was? It was Peter. Read John chapter 18, verse 10, the same account. We read that it was Peter who was standing next to Jesus when they tried to arrest him. He grabbed the sword and he cut off his ear. Now, either he was a great marksman or he was horrendous. I mean, how in the world would you cut off someone's ear? I mean, he couldn't even kill someone right. And he just chopped his ear off. And Jesus answered and he said, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I was in the temple and I was teaching and you didn't seize me. But this has happened that scripture must be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Oh, except Peter. Oh, no, wait. They all left him and fled. And a certain young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. They seized him. But you know what? He left the linen sheet behind. And he escaped too. But he didn't have anything on. I mean, it's, I mean everyone took off. And the Bible says in John, the same account in John chapter 18, that Jesus said, you know what? Put away your sword. Put away your sword. Because this battle isn't of flesh and blood. This is a spiritual battle. You know what? And, and as you go through this you would think that Peter would start picking things up. And he followed Jesus at a distance. And in verse 66, it says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And it's important to understand, we're talking a little girl. The word is used of a little girl. Not a grown woman, but a little child. A little child came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You too were with Jesus the Nazarene. But Peter denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. And the maid saw him and began once more to say to bystanders, hey, this is one of them. But again, he was denying it. And after a little while, while the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you too are a Galilean. But he began to curse and to swear and says, I don't know this man whom you're talking about. Can you imagine? Peter, I'm going to die for you, was confronted by a little girl. This little child said, but you're one of them. And he said, I don't even know what you're talking about. Not me. This big, huge fisherman that could drag 500 pounds of fish onto the shore was confronted by this little child who says, and you're one of them. And he says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. 
And somebody else said, but you do, you're one of them. And he said, no, no, I'm not. And then the crowd said, yes, sir, we all saw you. And he began to curse and to swear and say, no way, I don't even know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed three times. And Peter finally, it dawned on him what Jesus had said. And he left there weeping and broken and crying. You know what, there's a lot of lessons from Peter's life, but I want to share with you only two. They're not much, but they're my thoughts. <laughs> so there you go. But I want to share with you just from the standpoint that there's some things to learn here when it comes to understanding this God that we serve who is a God of second chances. And the first thing is this. You know what? Don't ever forget this, but God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In 1 Peter 5, 5, we read those words, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And don't forget that God is still opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He is set in concrete against those who are proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God allowed Peter to go through a series of events all designed to expose this weak area of his character. That he would fail. And he warned him, he said, you know what, if you don't stay alert, and if you don't keep watch, then you're going to fall into temptation. You need to keep alert and you need to pray that you don't fall into temptation. Because our spirit is willing. We want to do what's right before God. Every one of God's kids want to do what's right. Every one of us want to please God because we've got the spirit of God living within us saying, you know what, I want to do what's right before God. Then why do we fail so often and so miserably? Because the simple truth of the matter is that Jesus says we need to stay alert to the fact that we won't fail if we're not alert. We need to stay alert. We need to keep watching. We need to pray that we don't fall into temptation because our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. And he's saying to Peter, you know what, that's the problem that you have. Because Peter is like so many of us, you know, we need to heed this warning to, to be alert because we've got an adversary, the Bible says is the devil, who walks around on the face of the earth looking for someone to devour. And he wants to destroy our lives and destroy our reputations and destroy our homes and destroy our families and destroy our businesses and destroy our churches and destroy our finances and destroy every part of us because he can't have us for eternity. He wants to destroy us here and now. And we have to be alert to that fact that we are in a spiritual battle and many of us have fallen asleep on our first watch. And the way that we know that we've fallen asleep is that we too, like Peter, begin to argue with God as to whether the truth of God is really the truth of God. Whether his principles and standards are really for now and for all of eternity. Whether he really knows us like we think we know ourselves. The reality of it is, is that nobody knows us like him. You don't even know you as well as he knows you. I don't know myself as well as God knows me. And when he reveals a character flaw in my life and he says, I need to deal with this area, that I need to be open and susceptible and willing and teachable and, and trainable to, to change if I have to, to ask for forgiveness if it's necessary and to move on with my life. The bottom line of Peter is that he was a proud man and God's opposed to the proud, but he'll give grace to the humble. He was a man that said, I'll never deny you. I will never fail you. I will never leave you. These losers might, but I'm not going to. I'll die for you. Do you understand how real this is and what a problem that is in our life? I'm going to ask you a personal question. Is there an area of your life that you feel invincible? If there's one thing that I would never do, it's fill in a blank. I'd never deny him like Peter did. I'd never leave my spouse. I'd never desert my kids. I'd never cheat in business. I'd never lie. I'd never gossip. I'd never slander. I'd, I'd never treat people like that. 
I'd never, 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 fill in the blank. And let me tell you something about what you're about to enter into. It's what precedes every fall. That attitude of pride and self-righteousness precedes every fall. Every person I've ever talked to that has fallen in an area of their life have always said, you know what? And I thought that I would never do that. And I did. Why? Because pride cometh before the fall, and God hates a haughty spirit. Do you understand how true that is? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. We're told that the events that take place in the Old Testament were written as an example to us. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, starting with verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Do you understand what he's saying? If there's an area of your life that you take pride, that you have never fallen in that area, and you have taken pride in the fact that you haven't fallen and that you probably never will, then you better take heed where you stand, lest you too fall. You better be alert. You better keep watching. And you better keep praying because you're going to fall into temptation. Because your spirit's willing, but your flesh is not. And, first, and look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Turn back to 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, look at verse 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. What a great warning that is for all of us. You know, we ought to thank Peter for the fact that he allowed us to learn from his character flaws. But the second thing is, not only is God opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble, but the second truth of the matter is that victory comes not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You know, Peter's first reaction in the garden was immediately to pull out a sword. I'll fight for you. I'll kill someone. I'll cut off someone's ear. And Jesus said, put your sword away because this ain't going to work. Because we're dealing with a spiritual battle here. There's isn't anything that your flesh is going to be able to do. He says, be on the alert and pray. Man, you know, I stop and think about that. How many times in my life do I rely on my own knowledge, my own ability, my own persuasiveness, my own personality, my own bank account, whatever it is. So many times in life I rely on physical things. And he's saying, you know what, hey, stay alert. Keep watching and what? And pray. We're in a spiritual battle. When we're up against difficult times, we need to pray. We need to stay alert, but we need to pray. And he's saying this isn't a physical confrontation. We can't fight our way against spiritual enemies. We can't outpunch the devil. We can't outbox unprincipled men. We have to be sharp, spiritually sharp. When someone says, hey, I'm going to get in business with so-and-so, you know the first thing they say? You better pray about it. You better check into it. You better look at the Word of God. You better understand what God has to say. But I want to marry a non-Christian. He's a nice guy. He's, she's a nice gal. Whatever. You better look at what the Word of God has to say. And you better pray about it. Don't let your guard down. Oh, but it's okay. We're in love. Hey, you better look at what God has to say about your sexual conduct. And you better see what's going on in the Word of God. But you better pray about it. And I'll tell you what. And if your prayers are answered different than the Word of God, then you answered your own prayer. Because God didn't. 
Do you understand? I mean, what we learn from Peter's life is that, hey, you know what? This, this, this battle is against spiritual beings. And Peter learned that. And to further drive home the message, it was, you know, it was a little girl who confronted him first. Can you imagine it was a little girl? What do you do to a little girl when you're a big guy? If it had been a guy that confronted him first, you probably would have pulled out, pulled out his sword again and he probably would have tried to run it through him. But God in his graciousness brought a little girl to him to confront him with this weakness in his life. He couldn't punch her out. He didn't do anything. It's like nothing more frustrating than that. Out of the mouths of babes when an innocent child says, hey, but mom and dad, why are you doing this? What can you do? What do you do? You're busted. No, Peter couldn't hit her. He couldn't do anything. And the school bell rang and the lesson was taught. And there was nothing else to do but to listen and to learn of what God was having to say. And don't trust in our own strength. The Bible says, you know what? We need to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Not to lean on our own understanding and all our ways acknowledge Him so that He'll set our path straight. See, but what about, what, what about when we do fail? We all have fallen, 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 failed. There you go. We've all failed. I know sometimes you just you get all worked up, you know what I mean? And it's just, I don't know, some words come out and you go, gosh, that's a new one. I'll write that one down. <laughs> and you find out it's not really a word. As some of you so graciously indicate to me on several occasions. <laughs> but anyway, let's get back to business here. Okay, but you know, have you, let me ask, have you been to that class? I mean, have you been to the class of failure? Have you been where Peter is right now? He realized what he did was wrong. He's broken before God. He bitterly weeps. Now he's got to deal with it. Now he's got to deal with his failure. I believe because Peter was so hard on other people, he was also hard on himself. And you know what he did? He went back to fishing. You know what he said? I'm a loser. I blew it. I made a big mistake. I did what I never, I, I did what I thought I could never do. I did what I said I'd never do. And I've blown a big time. What's, what's left in life? I'll go back and fish. Because obviously, God has no use for me anymore. Obviously, Jesus doesn't want to see me anymore. He warned me, and I even argued with him. I could just see him picturing in his mind the argument that took place in the words that he said. Man, I blew it. Some of us are there. You know what I'm talking about? You've blown in an area you said you'd never, ever fail in. You've compromised in an area that you said, I'd never do that. Other people might, they might, but not me. Can God really forgive us for those areas in life that we say that we'd never compromise and we do end up failing? I love this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. It says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You know, and that is what some of you were. But you, you're different. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's God's grace that saves us. For it's by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God, so none of us would ever brag before God. He's saying, you know, 
that's what we were. And it's God's grace that saves us, and it's the same grace that sustains us in times of our failure. The point is, is that our God is a God of second chances. Anything and everything we've ever done can be forgiven by Him. No matter how you think you're disqualified for whatever reason that it is as you sit here today, I'm here to remind you of the fact that our God is a God of second and third and fourth and fifth. And you know what? And don't you think he'd hold himself to the same standard that he set for Peter? How often shall I forgive? Seventy times seven. That's our God. And what he's saying is, you know what? And especially go and tell Peter. Sure, they all deserted me. They all ran away and they all fled. But you know what? I know Peter. And I know his heart. And I know there's something about him that right now he feels he's a total failure before me. He thinks that I could never forgive him for it. He thinks there's no second chances. There's no usefulness at all for him as far as ministry is concerned. He thinks I'm done with him. I know what he's thinking because I'm God and I know everything. And I'm here to tell you, you go tell the disciples and you especially tell Peter because right now Peter needs to hear that more than anything else in the face of this earth. And he says, and you go tell him. Can you imagine Peter? Because the, we're told that Peter was the one who authenticated the book or the gospel of Mark. That it was Peter who John Mark or Mark wrote down the notes as he's inspired by the Spirit of God to write the gospel of, of Mark. Do you remember who Mark was? Mark, the same John Mark that abandoned Paul and Barnabas. Mark, the same one that, that Paul said had no more usefulness to him at that particular time in his life. And, and Barnabas said, but I know him, and this will destroy him. We need to pick it up, and we need to move on, and we need to keep him in the saddle, and we need to get him going again. Could you imagine Peter sharing with Mark the words, and especially tell Peter? Go tell the disciples, and Peter, I'm telling you right now, i got to believe that these two men, as they sat there together, and as Mark wrote these words down, both of them had tears in their eyes and a smile on their face. Because both of them had failed and they knew what it was like to be picked up and dusted off and said, you know what? You may have failed, but you're still useful to me. Don't you ever believe because you failed in an area of your life that God has no purpose for you anymore? Do you understand that that comes from the father of all lies? That comes from the pit of hell itself. That's not from the word of God. That's not from the mouth of God. In John chapter 21, Peter was out fishing with the guys. And they said, and Jesus came to them and said, hey, you've been fishing all night, huh? And they said, yeah. And they didn't even recognize who he was. He said, you didn't catch anything, did you? Jesus said. And they said, no, how'd you know that? We didn't catch anything. He said, well, because you had your net on the wrong side of the boat. Throw it on the other side of the boat. Now, anybody who knows anything about fishing, it doesn't make any difference what side you throw it on. But Jesus said, I'm throwing it on the other side. And they said, okay. And they threw it on the other side. And guess what? They hauled in a whole bunch of fish, and it's the same thing he said when I'll make you fishers of men. It was an illustration and a point that he made. It said, hey, you know what? Just like you're going to catch fish, you're of usefulness to me. And you're going to bring in many men and, men and women in the kingdom of God. And they said, you know who that is? That's Jesus. You know what Peter did? He threw on his outer tunic, he jumped into the water, and he swam and ran to shore. He couldn't get to him fast enough. And the rest of them followed in the boat. You know what he did? He humbled himself before God and said, I can't believe that you even came here. I can't believe that you even want to see me again. I can't believe that you could forgive me. 
Let me tell you something about Peter. He may have been a lot of things, but he wasn't stupid. He may have been a lot of things, but he wasn't dumb. When they said, Jesus wants to see you again, when they said he wants to forgive you, when they said he wants to give you a second chance, when they said he can't wait to see you again and you have usefulness to him, let me tell you something about Peter that many of us haven't realized yet. That's a heck of a deal. That's a great deal. When God's saying to you and me, listen, people in your life may say you're a loser. They may say you're a failure. The devil may be trying to make you believe that you have no usefulness for the kingdom of God anymore. But let me tell you something about the God that we serve and the God that we love. His mission is still the same. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He has come to offer forgiveness. And the bottom line is it's real simple. Do you want to be forgiven? Two things you got to do. You need to ask. And then you need to accept it. That's it. It doesn't get any easier than that. Man, our God's a God of second chances. We see it all throughout the Bible. We see it in Noah's life. We see it in Moses' life. We see it in David's life. We see it in, in, in Samson's life. We see it over and over again of men and women who have failed God only to be told, hey, you know what? You still have usefulness for me. Let me pick you up and dust you off and head you in the right direction. Don't sit there feeling sorry for yourself. Don't go back to fishing. Don't think that you're some loser because the devil's trying to make you believe that and other people around you won't forgive you. Who cares if they won't? I will. I'm the God of second chances. And I'll forgive you 70 times 7. Ask for forgiveness. You know what? If you don't ask for forgiveness when you've blown it and you don't accept the fact that you're forgiven, the bottom line is you're no different than Peter, that you're arguing with Jesus and telling him he doesn't know what he's talking about. Because the Word of God says if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just and He'll forgive us our sins and He'll cleanse us or purify us from all that unrighteousness. Do you realize that's the truth of the Word of God? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4 and we'll close on this. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4. What an encouragement as you consider Peter's life. Let me tell you something as I was going through this. You know, th there's, there's a fine line between arrogance and confidence. And I think as I've, as I've looked at Peter's life and as I've tried to put it into my own life and be able to grab it and walk away with it and, and to deal with it, that the bottom line is this. An arrogant person is a person who will put their faith and their trust in themselves and in their own ability and in their own strength. But a confident person is one who puts his faith, faith and trust in the character of God and in his spoken word. And there's a big difference between the two. Hebrews chapter 4, what a great encouragement. For the word of God <clears throat> is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature who is hidden from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Since then we have so great a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to what? To the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need. God, help us to never forget 
that we serve a God who's a God of second chances. Let's pray. Father, we just pray as we've come together today that there are many of us who have failed you. We've done some foolish things. We failed in areas that we promised you would never compromise in. We've fallen in areas that we said that we drew the line and would never go over that line, and yet, sure enough, we did. God, we just thank you for this example of Peter's life, who was a man who loved you, and yet he continued to fail in many ways. And yet you never wrote him off, and you never gave up on him. He was a man who became of great use to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You picked him up, and you dusted him off. He was a man who was broken by his sin, and he was humbled before you in your presence. He sought your forgiveness, and he accepted it once you had offered it. God, I just pray for those who are here and listening that if there's an area of their life where they feel like they've become disqualified from serving you, they bought into the lie that you would somehow reassure them through this word that you are a God of second chances and third and fourth and on and on. Father, I just pray that if there's anyone here that needs to confess their sins before you, that they would do so and not hesitate, that they acknowledge what they're doing is wrong and stop doing it asking for your forgiveness and accepting it and taking you for your word that you have truly done that. God, we just thank you that you're a God of great grace and that we can confidently appear before the throne of grace that we may receive grace and comfort in our time of need. And we just thank you for that and just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.